since brevity is the soul of wit. More of your conversation would infect my brain. Romeo. Wherefore art thou, Romeo? To speak of him as my kinsman, he's a most notable coward. An infinite and endless liar. An hourly promise breaker. The owner of no one good quality worthy your lordship's entertained. I'd beat thee, but I should infect my hand. The lady doth protest too much, methinks. The course of true love never did run smooth. Hi, Maiden. And I'm Lindsay. And this is the Big Spot. And we are here today to discuss the one of Shakespeare's lesser-known plays. Definitely one of his least produced plays. Yes, one of the plays I didn't even know was written until we were but going through our list. Fun fact, it was the first one to be committed to film back in 1899. That is a handy little tidbit of knowledge. Yes, Thank you, these are all facts you will learn in our discussion <laughs> of King John. Yes. King John. Not one of the more well-known monarchs in the great i mean well, aside from the magna carta which was kind of yeah kind and, of a big and, deal and but robin hood also kind yeah of a big but deal. that's that's mythology yeah but that's that cemented his place that you'll always I think guess. of robin hood and but when you think king of John. kings of england you think of the henrys you think of the tudors you think of you know they just had a much better pr system behind them i think well, this is this yes, is true. evident yeah um King John had Shakespeare as his PR person, and really, not not a. I'd great hire a new PR. one yes. at this point. Yes, yes. yeah. This uh, is not a great promo uh, for uh, said king. It's not like you're getting ooh. Henry V here. No, uh, full of propaganda and English, you know, glory. Now, the, if the play had been called The Bastard. You know, he he comes off pretty good in this. Yeah, I play. think he I think looks pretty good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're, we'll get into all of this. This mm-hmm. is this is an an interesting play, not a fun one. I will have no. to say, it's a bit of a slog. It's a dense play. It's a dense play, and it's it's not. There's there's no real plot arc. It's it's a very kind of meandering story of you know these this odd family. Let's just put it that way. It is kind of a family drama. Uh, but in a very, very strange set of circumstances. So not not quite the Sopranos no, level of family no, drama, but no, there's no there's, backstabbing. Exactly, yeah. That's Maybe what I was it is say. the Sopranos. Maybe it's getting close. Uh, right. Before we get into it too far, it is Lindsay's turn yeah. to do... describe the plot of the plotless play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now that we've set you up for that success, yeah. Um, you will have thirty seconds. Okay. Uh, let me just grab my timer here. I am prepared. Okay. Are you prepared? Uh, as as much as I can be. All right. Ready? Ready. Set? Yes, yeah, set. Go. So we have a king of England who is trying to hold on to the reins of power um, in the face of dissent from various noblemen, both in his own court and outside from other powers, France and Austria, notably. Um because there are other people who have better claims to the throne. While this is all happening, we have kind of in the background uh, a, a bit of a interesting story involving a young man who is of questionable birth and um dealing with legacies in both cases i think it's it's really a difficult play to summarize in 30 seconds i'm really resentful of the fact that i i got stuck with this play. <laughs> that was that was not bad though because you're right i mean it's kind of like there's a king dealing with his problems and then underneath there's this other guy and i missed the whole subplot with the, the church and everything going on with rome and and yeah. the, because this is the thing so so you have like central to the plot the main thrust of the plot is that you have king john who is like he was the fourth son of henry the second henry the yeah. second 
all three of his older brothers died. Yep. Notably, Richard the Lionheart um, died in, in the Crusades, was a um, very popular and beloved king. And King John is the one who is reigning in in, in his stead. Yep. Um, so his struggle to hold on to the reins of power in the face of a young um uh, pretender to the throne? No, he's 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 well, in the line of succession. He's, he's his older brother's son. son. And so the, what we're going to get into this a little bit because what happens here is like the opposite of what happened in the Wars of the Roses plays mm-hmm. that we talked about. Um, because you have the inheritance of the crown passing to a brother as opposed to a grandson or yeah. a son. Yeah. And when a son would have made maybe more sense. Well... <laughs> well, here's the, the thing is that, but in both cases, like the the one that you're talking about most adroitly is Richard II, right. who was the grandson. He was yes. the son of the son yes. who could have, who should have inherited. Son of the black did. prince who didn't inherit. Yes. but yes. And so he did. Uh, and he was deposed because people had other, other brothers had claims. And this it is, passed but on this is well. what I'm saying. In King John, the, the son of an older son. Yeah. Should be by Richard II's logic should be inheritor to the throne but by the, the logic of the character richard the second by the logic of the play richard the yeah, second he did not funny. have like, it I, but but also by the logic of of the the uh what's it called the descent of through the, the, the line the, the, it goes the, yeah. to the oldest son of the oldest son well so yeah. so the younger son like it doesn't matter how many pawns are in play you know prince harry isn't gonna sit on the throne unless <laughs> nobody else is do you know I, what I mean? I suppose you could read it that way. I would say that all the plays thus far, Henry the Sixth, Henry the Fourth, or Richard the Second, now King John, they all come up to the same conclusion, they which do. is that the laws of succession aren't really laws because power comes at the end of the sword. And that's where a fantastic segue, because our first <laughs> thing that we want to talk about in terms of big themes is power and weakness in the play. Yeah. Um, we 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 struggled with this a lot, I'm not gonna lie, um, because it does seem like there isn't really much to talk about in terms of plot but in terms of theme you can really look you almost have to look at the play in terms of discrete themes and it's almost like each scene yeah, each act it, has its yeah, own theme or idea that it's dealing yeah, with yeah. Um, so we we relied heavily on the website Schmoop I don't know if you've ever used Schmoop before I have now it is a good website it's kind of like a snarkier Sparknotes it's like yes. if Sparknotes Twitter had its own site because Sparknotes <laughs> is, is fairly straightforward straightforward yeah. Sparknotes Twitter is kind of hilarious. <laughs> and then Schmoop is like that, but on the site. So it, we'll, we'll put the link up so you can kind of read um, read through yourself and, and use it for your own purposes. But um, they had this pow- this wonderful section on each of the themes, and they had some really great guiding questions. So we're kind of using those guiding questions to guide our discussion. And the first theme point that we wanted to talk about was power and weakness. Um so I guess the first thing is um, the the idea that power is power is central to the whole thing. Whoever has power, and there's various ways of getting power and holding on to power. Obviously, whoever has power has power and yes. is the leader of of everything. Um, on the flip side of that, the people who are weakest in the play are presented as ineffectual. Um, and I guess we could talk a little bit about how that holds true and, and where people, um, where that kind of dynamic falls apart. But maybe we can we can just speak to the different types of power, Aiden, mm-hmm. that are present in the place. So so what do you think? What are the main 
sources of power. Well, the one that's traditionally there uh, and was there in the other ones is obviously the military power, the the the, the strength of the sword. But mm-hmm. in this play, it's kind of uh, it's confused because every every instance where one party is going to have the upper hand militarily mm-hmm. and is going to take over because they have stronger military might uh, is kind of. Uh, contradicted in some way yeah one shape shape or form or another uh there's the initial battle scene between uh england England, and france france Uh, austria exactly and they're 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 butting heads outside angiers and you know one the messenger of france comes on and says ah we've won the day you know those english uh widows are crying back home because we've slew slew so many so many uh uh, Englishman, and then the English uh, messenger comes out and says essentially the same thing about yeah. the French. Uh, so you don't really get the sense that there's any one individual or group or uh, side to this conflict that has the military might, which is kind of interesting because usually that's how these things were decided uh, yeah. historically, and Shakespeare relies on that in a lot of cases. You know, yeah, the bigger army wins yeah. the day, and then that's what grants you the legitimacy to rule. Exactly. But in this case, it does seem like they're fairly evenly matched. Even uh, like the people of Angier can't even decide. Like, yeah. well, whoever wins will be the king of England. <laughs> we'll just let you guys figure it out. Yeah. But they can't really. And the bastard comments on it as well with the comment about. Um, one bat, one um, army on one side of the town, the other on the other side, and they'll just shoot cannons into each other's mouths, yeah. right? Like they really, it really does seem like there's not one side that's going to topple the other. And later on, when um, the Roman Catholic army did, they, did the Pope have an army? Uh, had- he did, but that's not the case. He was, was using France. I guess it was France true. who was invading. But either way, they like his power his military power is going to be the deciding factor because the other forces are evenly matched so he'll come in and decide and then in the end he's not needed because other things happen but yeah uh, yeah, it does seem like there's the the question of military power seems like it should be the most important in there and there are a lot of battle scenes not that we see them but they're referenced yeah but nothing is really decided by battles. Yes. It almost seems like power, the real source of power is like um, a moral power almost or something like that, right? Yeah, a little bit. Because it, like if you follow, uh, if you take King John as the protagonist, which he's not. He's not the yeah. protagonist of the play. He's, it's very similar to Henry VI in that way that yeah. he's a relatively minor character. But if you viewed him as the protagonist and you followed his arc, you know, he starts off in an okay position then he's in a you know a scary kind of position where he's gonna have to fight france and then he makes up with france uh and then he is instantly uh stabbed in the back by the yeah by the roman by the catholic church and then he's going to fail terribly and then he makes up with the catholic church and then he's again going to lose but then he somehow doesn't because uh the bastard who we'll get to uh saves the day and then, so it's like this huge roller coaster of of his military position yeah. uh, across the whole play. So you you get the sense that uh, he himself does not have any of the power. He is at the whim of these other forces, um, and it's it's kind of interesting to think of like what causes him to go down this path of 
having power, not having power, having power, maybe having power, begging for power, getting it. Like, where, where is this? Well, kind that's of all what I'm from? saying is the moral authority. Whoever exactly. has the moral upper hand exactly. has the power. Yeah. And, yeah. So, and, and his story kind of tracks with he does. He has more power. Sorry, this is what I was getting to. Yeah. eventually. Sorry. But uh, he has more power when he's more of a good guy. Right. Uh, and that's really dependent on what he does with his nephew, Arthur, um, because when uh, he's when he's threatening to kill Arthur. When he intends to kill Arthur, bad things happen to him. Yes, he loses it's, his yeah. the support of his noblemen. Yeah, and, yeah. Everybody jumps and yeah. uh, jumps on him. And then as soon as he's kind of like, oh, I wish I hadn't done that, and he finds out that Arthur's still alive. Yeah, he temporarily has the the, the upper power, hand, the upper hand a little bit. Yeah, and really. then yeah, but it's it, it's so strange. Like yeah. that that whole dynamic of uh, connecting morality with uh, political will, which is you know. Uh, a staple of Shakespeare's kind of more moral history plays mm-hmm. is kind of upended here a little bit more. Mm. You know, we don't get the heroics of Henry V being the great English king fighting against huge French odds and succeeding because he is the moral king. He right. is the good king, yeah. Henry V. Uh, we get kind of a complete inversion of that here where it sometimes King John is good, sometimes he's evil, and his power fluctuates Kind of in time with that, kind yeah. of not. Yeah, it is it is weird because the, the other source of power obviously comes through the divine right of kings, which mm-hmm. is granted by God. And um, it's not like the in previous plays, um, not, maybe not in any of the histories that we've read so far, but when you do get to Henry V, he's kind of that great English king yeah. that is revered. Um He's really the only one that stands out as as being someone who has that moral right to reign, mm-hmm. where his military might, his yeah. moral right, and his divine right are all in sync and working towards the same purpose. And maybe that's why he's such a successful king, even though he had his own problems, <laughs> which we'll get yes. to when we talk about Henry V. It seems like all these other kings that we've talked about have, they're failing in some way. They might have military might, but they're corrupt in mm-hmm. in soul or um, they might have a pure heart, but they don't have the divine right bestowed upon them. And it seems like, like uh, John really suffers from all three he doesn't yeah. really have any of them because he does he also doesn't have um the divine right if we look at primogeniture yeah. um as we talked about he is the fourth son of his kingly father his nephew arthur who is the pretender to the throne or the the one who's the legitimate heir yes yeah, yeah. maybe he is more legitimate and that's that's something that um, certainly when you look at Arthur as the only other kingly figure, if we discount Philip and the Dauphin and the other um, royal figures yeah, in the Austria, play, if we yeah. push them away yeah. and we just look at Arthur and John, Arthur is this little boy and John is his corrupt uncle, or, or maybe not corrupt, but his, yeah, his conflicted uncle. Yes, let's put it that way. Um, Arthur is innocent. He seems to have everything... Like, he does have a better claim to the throne. He has um, the strength of his mother behind him, which mm-hmm. is important. And he has um, not only the, the army of France, but Austria on his side. Mm-hmm. Um, it's 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 interesting that he is... He seems like he has more going for him than John does. 
But in the end, he doesn't actually get much out of it either. Arthur is a very young boy. He's yeah. captured by the king. He's um, going to be killed. Secretly sentenced to death. Yeah. 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 But his executioner um, bails in the, at the last minute, and Arthur for whatever reason, tries to escape or jumps or is pushed or commits suicide, leaps off the wall of the castle well, and dies. He tries to escape. Well, no, yes, in, in the true story, yeah. there is some mystery there, and yeah, it's possible that John is, yeah. did have him killed or he committed suicide or something, but he died falling from the castle battlements or something like mm-hmm. that, which is what's depicted in the play. Um, so he doesn't really get much for having more of that so if we looked at arthur as like this plays henry v almost because he's got more in his corner yeah um he still doesn't come out on top so yeah exactly so it really does seem like like power is it's not correlated to like you might have power but you don't have power if that makes sense (laughs) it it does and and i think your 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 question about uh the divine right of kings is important because one of the key turning points for John uh, when he loses power is that he goes against the church. Mm-hmm. Um, and, But in a very Protestant way. It's a very hard play to read in some ways yeah. because there's a lot of like, uh, oh, Catholics are all bad. Uh, you guys are all sucking up to this vapid yes. priest yes. or whatever they call him. Uh, this meddlesome priest. Yes. Uh, so when you add that, uh, that anti-Catholic factor to it, it's hard to tell whether... Or not, John is actually going against God. Yeah, um, you could read the play as he's punished by France when he chooses to uh, go against Catholic Church, right? Or you could see it as he stuck up for uh, Anglican ideals from the and, 16th century. Yeah, yeah, in the 12th. <laughs> in the 12th. But uh, you know, like it's 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 just complicated. It adds another layer of complication as to where where the power is coming from. How is the audience supposed to recognize yeah. who's good in this situation? Whether or not they actually do have the divine. Uh, right of kings being bestowed on them. Yeah, uh, it's it's such a messy, messy play in that way. Even it's it's complicated further when you realize that King John was the one who signed the Magna Carta into existence, mm-hmm. and that really did chip away at that that absolute power that yeah. kings had prior to this. Well, they never really did, but they no, but but yeah. it, it really but it codified, yeah. yeah, that yeah. there was a, a universal like declaration of rights almost that that. English subjects had yeah. underneath their king. Yeah. Um, that was something that hadn't been done before. And and King John has a funny relationship with the Magna Carta because he even didn't didn't really adhere to it no, of himself course not. It was because it to was get them off his back exactly. And, yeah. So so it almost seems like this play deals with the question of power mm-hmm. in a way that contemporary audiences in Shakespeare's day, would have understood um, in relation to John's relationship to Magna Carta. Yeah. So John doesn't have any power because he gave away that power um, in a way. So it's almost like the play is foreshadowing a bit, but post-shadowing because this probably takes place sometime after Magna Carta. The The timeline don't, it doesn't matter really. But yeah, yeah, so I, I just, it's interesting to look at that in terms of the the power dynamics that are going on once John the historical John signs Magna Carta into into law yeah I think initially yeah and I think 
it might be a little bit of our reading into because now Maybe. I think Magna Carta has been kind of built up as like this defining document. Whereas there were always there are all sorts of legal documents. Yeah, uh, and there were there was more than one Magna Carta too. Yeah, and yeah. but I think it is still when you yes we have built it up, but it is the first time that a Western power yeah. signs pa- signs rights to the average citizen. Well, I mean that's kind it's of more for the loyal. Okay, yeah. Well, well, yeah, we yes. can get into this uh perhaps more later, but uh, Let's talk about weakness a little bit because on okay. the flip side of that is is there are characters in this play who don't seem to have a lot of power but still seem to somehow exert power or exert influence anyway yeah. over others. Like the women, the female characters, yep. Constance and uh Eleanor. Yep. The king's mother and Arthur's mother. Yeah. Um they wield a lot of power in behind. It's almost like they're they're the real power behind their sons yeah, in a weird way, yeah. especially with Arthur. But even with the king, she's the the former king's widow, so yeah. she's she's still a queen technically, yeah. um, and she really does seem to be pulling the strings behind. Yeah, in the scene with the bastard, especially, she's the one who does all of the talking yeah. and and confers this status upon this man who is her son's illegitimate. Son. son yeah her illegitimate grandson yeah yes. and it, it's it's interesting because there's again this was you know eleanor was the uh dutch the duchess of aquitaine so she was yeah. the the one who had the most french holdings and yes. they were all hers um and they they were obviously going to be inherited by her children but uh you know john actually loses all yeah. of them historically as well so that's another thing is that once she's gone uh the power of England to contest France yes. and the lands there disappears as well. So, uh, and it's it's done very flatly and, you know, almost banging your head over or banging your head with a stick kind of clarity in the play is that as soon as uh, the two women are gone, yeah. the two men are dead, essentially, yeah, like within, short, very shortly yeah. thereafter. I think uh, Arthur dies first on stage, mm-hmm. um, but then we get word about Constance and Eleanor both dying, and then John's poisoned, like, yeah. a couple lines later. Or something so like it's, that. it's remarkable, because when you think about women, the positions that these women held, they were powerful in relation only to their husbands or their mm-hmm. or their children. Um, but the minute that they disappear, the powerful men that they're holding up disappear too. Yeah. So it's, it's um, that... It's almost like that old saying about behind every successful man is a powerful woman or whatever. A a strong woman woman. or something. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Just any woman. (laughs) Just whatever. Well, and 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 it's interesting because the women in the play, especially those two, Mm -hmm. uh, exert a a type of power, going back to our main topic here, uh, that the men essentially lack um i think the only one Mm. who perhaps uh kind of retains for themselves that sense of power is the pope offstage slash his emissary maloon i think is i forget his name no uh pandolf pandolf yeah Yeah. um maloon maloon is another character oh yes you're right you're right you're right i forgot i thought you were just mispronouncing melon for a minute (laughs) or something it would be very on brand yeah it's true (laughs) i would just get a name wrong that's not surprising at all uh but yeah like he like he makes decisions he's like well i want this thing yeah you don't give it to me i'm gonna punish you for it none of the other characters have that um Mm. except the women have this drive to you know keep their sons on the throne or put their sons on the throne um 
And the other interesting woman character, I know we were going to talk about men and women yeah. separately, but it's kind of all related, is uh, the bastard's mom. Yes. Who makes a very brief but very kind of... Mrs. Falconbridge. Yeah, Mrs. <laughs> Falconbridge's Falconbridge. uh, yeah. appearance is is kind of interesting because she's uh, she's defensive of her sons, both of them, mm-hmm. uh, and she... She has the power of knowledge. Yes. You know, in a sense that uh, nobody else in the world has because uh, Richard I died. So he doesn't, you know, nobody can claim uh, parentage for this boy except for her. And And, Richard I, who is dead. Yeah, Yeah. that's what I'm saying. Yeah, Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. so like, and she exerts that power in 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 a very interesting way the fact that she's very positive and also supportive and she wants her son to do well yeah um it's very in keeping with the two other women yeah um it's just it's a very strange dynamic to Mm -hmm. have these three women these three mothers you know it's a play that you would not think is about motherhood in any way shape or form uh but it really does become about that uh for the, these intersections of all these themes winds up being these mother characters. Yeah, yeah. And they also have uh, each of those mother characters, the quote-unquote weak characters. And mm-hmm. I, I say that because, you know, women on in any kind of situation at this time were considered weaker. Mm-hmm. They're the weaker sex, yes, right? Yes, yes. Um, but they, they, all three of them have... Um, Away with words. And it's mm-hmm. their words that help them to retain power or um so in a weird way they use their 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 background characters. Women blend into the background, but these three characters step out in front in in an interesting way yeah. through their use of language that mm-hmm. that pushes their agenda forward yep. um or sends an army into battle or confers a title on a son yeah. who is now inherited instead of disinherited, mm-hmm. which is which is yeah also a really fascinating thing to think about that the women characters have that have that power. Are there any other characters who you would think of as being like traditionally considered weak? Hubert is is one that that kind yeah. of comes to mind, and Hubert is the one that King John initially tasks with murdering Prince Arthur. Um, but he changes his mind and and doesn't go through with it because mm-hmm. the young child begs him and convinces him not to, yeah. um, which could be seen as a weakness in him. Yeah, but it's well, he also was given his he was given a command by his, exactly. his liege and he fails to do it. I mean, but that's it's a good because the king changes his mind too. The king is yeah. also a powerful weak character yeah. or a weak powerful character, yeah. however you want to look at <laughs> yeah. it, because he doesn't really stick to his guns. Right, no. he'll go where like. Whatever will benefit him most is where he'll go. And that's not really something that it's something that powerful, powerful people do. It's something that successful people do, but it's not something that people with any kind of moral integrity do. Yeah. So that seems to weaken him in a way. Mm-hmm. Okay. Why, some are born great, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrown upon them. So if power corrupts people mm-hmm. does the opposite hold true does being a weak character make you mm. the opposite of corrupt yeah i think there's definitely some evidence of that uh, i'd say the two characters that jump to mind are arthur himself yeah. who's very pure mm-hmm. portrayed as pure throughout there's no yeah. hints of 
him being a, a bad tyrant in the making or anything yeah. like that. He's just a sweet little boy who yeah. doesn't want really, his eyes gouged yeah, yeah. out. You know, yeah. like it's there's not much character there, but mm-hmm. he is uh, portrayed definitely as as a far more moral character. The other one is the bastard. Mm-hmm. So he he chooses to give up all worldly possessions. Yeah, he gives up all his land that he would have inherited if he had claimed to be a Falconbridge yes. instead of uh, Richard's son. But instead he doesn't. He, mm-hmm. he chooses to go and to give up possessions in order to acquire a, a status a, yeah, a or status, something. Yeah. A, a sense of... Uh, Identity. Yeah, maybe. a little bit. It's, it's, it's an interesting thing that he chooses because he's basically... Uh, he's giving up short-term power in the hopes of perhaps gaining yeah. more power in the future. Yeah. Uh, which is... Again, yeah, it's an interesting choice in this where everybody else is just grabbing onto power immediately, mm-hmm. hungry for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's the only character who really grapples uh, internally with the outcome of these power plays that are, yeah. that, are that are on hand. Besides, I, I mean, you, you have uh, Hubert, you know, yes. re- rejecting killing uh, Arthur, but that's about it in terms of like a character having a moral reckoning. Maybe Blanche has a moment where Blanche is trying to decide yeah, okay. who she owes allegiance to. Yeah. Um, but, you know, this is all really good segue into the the next topic that I kind of wanted to discuss, mm-hmm. which is like family and inheritance because yeah. um, the bastard and Blanche both have to grapple with that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about the bastard a bit because yeah. we haven't really, we just mentioned him, but yeah. his story is, is kind of what kicks off the, the central conflict in the play in a weird way because he comes in with his brother and they want to in front of the king they want the king to resolve this dispute over inheritance of their father's property because the younger son claims that he is the only only legitimate son of their father uh sir falconbridge or lord falconbridge or whatever his name is um and the bastard who comes on as Philip, Philip Falconbridge, yeah. um, then goes through like this weird identity shift in like a few lines where yeah. he goes from being Philip Falconbridge to a bastard to uh, Richard Plantagenet, Sir yes. Richard Plantagenet, um, because the king and Eleanor, Queen Eleanor, recognize in him the stature of Coeur de Lyon, yeah. and they decide that he must be the illegitimate son of Richard the Lionheart, so they they elevate him. And that that the fact that, yeah, the bastard can go from being Falconbridge's son, eldest son, the inheritor of all this land, to a landless courtier, basically, mm-hmm. um, with a maybe a claim to the throne, wow. really. Yeah, this is one of like, the things, that's, right? That's, yeah. And, and the, the fact that King John just accepts this and, yeah. and welcomes him as cousin um, shows how little concern he has for for the the rules of primogeniture, maybe. Yeah. But um, he doesn't really feel threatened by by well, any of this. He decides this is what's going to happen because this is this is right. This is my brother's son. He is now welcomed into the family. Here's your title. You have no land, but you have this this knighthood bestowed yeah. upon you, basically. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I guess it's, it's, uh, it's interesting that the play kicks off with this. And then we deal with other examples of inheritance. So we have, like, this family inheritance, which is about land and, and property, but then you have who inherits the crown, yeah. which is that central grounding conflict through the whole yeah. rest of the play. And with the power dynamic that we talked about, 
the church says one thing and France and Austria who are backing Arthur say something else. Yeah. It's it's the question of legitimate inheritance hangs over the whole play yes. based on this really it's almost like a frame narrative yeah, but it's one scene long yeah it's really interesting yeah it's it is a unique uh approach to telling that kind of story because uh you, it, it happens very suddenly mm-hmm. and then the bastard kind of thrust into it and then throughout the rest of the play Lindsay, you you mentioned this when we were watching uh watching it yesterday is that he kind of acts as kind of like an observer yeah he, he comments he has, on everything yeah he has a lot of asides like yeah. some of them are quite long where he's mm-hmm. like basically like talking about the situation that we're watching to the audience to the audience yeah, giving us wonderful. like funny commentary in a lot of cases uh and it's 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 a weird kind of position to have this character in because mm-hmm. uh, he's the one source of potential power that's never discussed in no. the play. He is the son of Richard I, a king of England. Mm-hmm. He's the son of... Granted, it's not through marriage, so there's no chance of him no, being legitimate. Yeah. But... Um, he's still a son of Plantagenet yes, blood, yes, yeah. and he's made so explicitly by uh, John, and yet he's somehow just an observer to this whole. Thing. Yeah, it's yeah. very very strange, um, and, and I, I that was actually watching it and talking to you about it as we were watching it was yeah. made that more interesting because when you're on the page you're like who's this guy why is he why, why is he, is he just even here? here yeah and yeah. like why is he continually showing up and talking smack to Austria and stuff like that. And yeah. it, some of it just works on a dramatic, like on and the stage level. level yeah. Exactly, yeah. But um, but thematically, thematically, it also makes sense because this play is just so confused about mm-hmm. all these things about inheritance. Who should inherit a crown? Uh, and I think the other thing that we we haven't talked about yet is like, what traits do you inherit? What do you inherit from your parents yeah. that are that are things that um, are not material? Because you know? the 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 thing that. Uh, sorry, Eleanor and King John recognize in the bastard are his physical characteristics. Yeah. And he comments on that, that he has nothing alike with yeah. his father or his brother, and he yeah. insults them both in a weird yeah. way. Um, after he's realized that he has this stature of the great Richard I. Um, but does he have, you know, the the lion heart of Richard I? Yeah. He seems to be a bit of a bastard i'll say that um (laughs) he's snarky he's you know are these qualities that um i don't think the play is as concerned with questioning is the bastard king material or kingly material but it is an interesting question to say what do you inherit from your parents um because that that again hangs over the whole play Mm -hmm. what what did John inherit from his parents? Yeah. Well, well, he didn't really inherit it from his parents. He inherited it from his brothers, but he inherited the, England. Yeah, yeah. He inherited France through his mother. Well, no, he inherited um, it from his father. Cause yeah, by, I guess. Yeah. By his father. Right. And, yeah. and that's the interesting thing is because then Arthur is denied that same inheritance yep. and it's, and it's, it's really questioning like, okay, they're both, they both seem legitimate. They both mm-hmm. seem like they should be able to inherit um, some things, but there's only one crown, mm-hmm. uh, and there's only um, one set of circumstances that are going to play out amidst all this yeah. shifting power dynamics and stuff. 
But it plays out, how it plays out is not so much a question of what should play out. It's, it's what does play out. And it's, it's a factor. It depends on factors that are outside of the control of many of these characters. Yeah. It's almost like Shakespeare himself is kind of the bastard viewing these things. Like that, maybe that's, maybe it is more of a self insert than than we think. I I didn't even look up. (laughs) Yeah. Well, really, because like, I didn't even look up if uh, there was a bastard who came to yeah here at this point i, I kind of I. doubt it because um he I've, seems I've, too alive to be a yeah, real character yeah. the only other character that i remember f- leaping off the page like this is is hal and falstaff yeah. in in uh, henry the fourth yeah but um but they were real characters or sort of falstaff <laughs> some, kind some of like, based yeah. on a real person but yeah um but it, it does it, it adds a an interesting dynamic to think that this is this is Shakespeare almost making sense of these weird back and forths yeah, yeah. that happened historically and him being like, uh, oh, what does this all mean? You know, and I'm going to have a character there who's there along the whole path and he's not really going to know where to make of it, um, especially at the end. Yeah. Um, it, he winds up in kind of an interesting place mm-hmm. because he winds up uh, swearing loyalty to Henry III, uh, you know, the pal of the day. Yeah. Uh, and you get the sense that his his understanding of power has kind of gone full circle it's it's it started off with like a father son um relationship uh which is like a a subject to his liege right um and he kind of goes through the whole rigmarole of seeing how that doesn't really work in any way shape or form because there's uh vassals of uh of John who betray him and then get betrayed and then go back to him. And all this stuff happens in like a a single scene too, which is kind of confusing, but he's kind of experienced this whole thing. He's gone and ransacked a bunch of churches and seen the people rise up and Mm -hmm. and hate their liege. Mm -hmm. Um, And then at the end of it, he's just like, he just goes back to it. And it's, it's kind of interesting. You're left with this kind of strange ambiguity of his emotional state uh, after, after all that's played out. Hmm. Does that make any sense? Was I just sort of. I didn't get that that from it. <laughs> okay. Well, I just, he kind of, once his pop-up video commentary kind of disappears and he yeah. stops being, and, and starts interacting with the scene as opposed to commenting on the scene, he loses interest for me, mm-hmm. I, or I lose interest in him as a character. Yeah. Um, so I wasn't as concerned with where he ended up at the end. Yeah. I was more yeah. concerned with um, how this is going to affect the Henry the third and yeah. um, the, the future, the security, I guess, of the throne, Yeah, which we'll get to when we talk about um, how Shakespeare deals with the past and, and makes yeah. it work with the present. Cause I think there's a lot of anxiety in this play and that's why um, because of the anxiety of the time, but also the anxiety of Shakespeare's time. So, mm-hmm. um, so that's definitely something to talk about. I think when we get there, What's mine is yours, and what is yours is mine. So the next big theme that we wanted to talk about is is betrayal, or um, how people betray one another in this play. And there is a lot of backstabbing, as we mentioned. Yes. Um, people who decide they want to be on one side and then uh, flip sides very quickly. We didn't talk about Blanche when we talked about family and inheritance, yeah. but she factors into this as well, because mm-hmm. um, in, in one dramatic scene, there's... Uh, quite a lot of backstabbing going on and she participates in it. So, um, yeah, it is true. Like pretty much everybody in the play is betrayed by someone at some point. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and it's not that 
I don't think the play, I don't think Shakespeare is saying that betrayal is an okay thing to do, but there is almost a tacit admission that this happens. Yeah. And I, I thought the interesting way he laid it out was that he, uh, there was a passage, I believe, from Constance um, mm, talking about li- law and. Yeah. Yeah. Th- yeah. Like the limitations of like the law tells, says this, says we should do this. Um, and there's another one where uh, the, the king of France mm-hmm. is being told like, well, I just married my son to this family. We are yeah. bound by religious law. Yeah. Um, we are one now. How am I supposed to just stab him in the back because yeah. the Pope says so? Yeah. And and then the, you have the Pope going saying, well, you no, have to. You have to. I'm, <laughs> I'm the voice of God on this planet and yes. we need you. I need you to go beat up the, the king of England. And it's like, OK, well, I'm betraying no matter what course of action he takes, he's betraying someone. Yeah. So, you know, is that still a betrayal? Like yeah. if you have to betray in order to not betray, yeah. how can you betray? <laughs> you know. Well, and, and then because of the way that the family dynamics are working, mm-hmm. you have um, betrayals that don't seem like they should be happening and betrayals that don't feel like betrayals. For example, with Blanche, who is the mm-hmm. niece of the king of England. She's married to the Dauphin of France and she sides with her husband over siding with her, her blood relatives. And it happens very shortly after Philip is talking about how can he betray his newly formed relations Mm -hmm. Um, in favor of his blood relatives. So Blanche does the opposite. She yeah. betrays her blood relatives for this newly formed. So it's it's like the betrayals don't follow any one course of action. They they kind of, again, it's all about where where is it most advantageous for me to be. And for Blanche, it was best for her to be with her husband to side with France. For France, it was better to side with France instead of going up mm-hmm. against the 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 pope, and, the pope. Yeah. um go against england right don't go up against rome mm-hmm. um hubert is another character who yeah. has a betrayal but then um flips it around yeah he almost betrays poor prince arthur but then has a change of heart and tries to protect him instead mm-hmm. um well and he betrays his king by doing and betrays so. his exactly <laughs> so so there's that is almost that's treasonous right the yeah. king has given you an order and you are not obeying that order um in order to save this young boy who really is just a kid but murdering a child it's it's an absolutely horrific proposition that's being made there he's going to be blinded with a hot poker and killed the fact that this is even being talked about on stage it's it's like we only hear about that shit in Titus Andronicus. We don't see it on yeah, stage, yeah. right? But here we're we're presented with the real possibility that we're going to see a young child be like tortured on stage. It's horrifying, yeah. right? So you're almost like, yeah, betray the king. Like <laughs> like this is okay, and that's unthinkable for a contemporary Shakespearean audience would have a really hard time with that. Mm-hmm. Although I think they would still side with Hubert. Yeah. Right. So it's it it's interesting in that way mm-hmm. that it it takes again, the moral authority does not rest with the king in that scene. He's doing something that is immoral. Right. In order to av- advance power in some other way. Yeah. And because he doesn't hold the morality, 
it's easy for us to to turn against him. Yeah, and and uh, you one of one of the guiding questions from Schmoop uh, was an interesting one about um, why do people betray? Mm-hmm. And it seems like the you know the bastard has a speech. Uh, talking about how commodity, you know, self-interest mm-hmm. is kind of what guides everything. Um, and Absolutely. F- and, and for the most part, it is. And I think the only exception is Hubert himself. Like yes. even the queens that we've talked of, it's their own self-interest to have a son on the throne mm-hmm. that drives them. Uh, you know, the bastard is kind of an interesting in-between maybe where it's his own benefit, but then he also uh, wants to support the king directly. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a strange little thing. But uh, Hubert is the one who... Uh, betrays his king for completely unselfish reasons. Yeah, just because um, it's the right thing to it's do. It's the right thing to do. Yeah, um, and he's the hero of this he, whole story. He kind of is <laughs> in a weird way, right? Yeah. Um, but it's interesting that he gets kind of punished. Like he's almost threatened with death because yeah. people don't believe that he yes. saved him. Uh, because Arthur does eventually die, that's yeah. just an unfortunate consequence that had nothing to do with anything. Yeah, and and that's that's that, I remember reading that just to go off on a tangent yeah. a little bit, but I remember reading that part and I'm like, what is this play about? Like, yeah. what is going on in this play that like you go through this whole like I'm gonna poke your eyes out? No, you're not. No, the okay, anguish I am. of all of that. There's so much, and then you're like, okay, well he's gonna escape. I, something interesting is gonna happen. No, nope, they just he kill just him. falls off a, off a wall and dies, and, and it's like okay, like. It just completely undercuts the dramatic tension that was built right. in the previous scene, and it's it's again a very interesting play. That that way. might be a case where where the um, the drama of the play had to take a backseat to the historicity of the play because Absolutely. they had to bring in the fact that Arthur didn't make it. Yeah. Like that's, you know, but then why put that scene with Hubert in at all? Yeah. Right. Like why even have this big anguished scene? What does Hubert, I think that's what makes Hubert such an interesting character in this, in this case, because his betrayal is the, is I think the only one that happens that isn't in self-interest and it, it's important that it's there. It just doesn't make sense that it's there Yeah. because it does highlight, it must then highlight what the author thinks about this subject i think so and it's every other character who betrays because of self-interest ends up not on our good side yeah except for hubert who doesn't do that and you know what what i'm saying exactly yeah no it's but it's it's still ambiguous about where hubert kind of winds up in our in our moral hierarchy of this play because it's still messy and well, he was still... going to do something bad and yes. then and then had to be convinced not to do it yeah but but i think the <laughs> the ends of that whole thing justify how he got there i guess so like this he play, had, oh. it, it is this is what i mean like it's it's such a messy 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 play really um we t- we kind of touched a little bit on the masculinity versus femininity when we talked about the queens um and or the mothers and their uh, relationship with their sons but um but there is some in in terms of this big theme there are um interesting things to talk about maybe we can spend a few minutes touching on that mm-hmm. um because we were just talking about hubert i think he's a character that maybe i don't know if he lives up to the standards of masculinity that would be considered yeah. typical of Shakespeare's time or if he if he meets them or doesn't like I don't know where he sits yeah it's it's interesting because like 
if you think of the knights, you know, like the chivalry, yeah, that yeah. would have still been kind of like the high, the high point of moral understanding of, mm-hmm. of even Shakespeare's day to an extent, is that you are courteous and forgiving to your uh, defeated enemies. So, mm-hmm. you know, Arthur wasn't defeated on the field of battle. He was defeated by a, by a diplomacy. Yeah. But, you know, do you, do you murder him? No. Like, that definitely makes John out to be, uh, in a way non-chivalric it is it is still masculine what he does though because he is pursuing his own self-interest through uh you know violence yeah exactly yeah um so yeah it 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 definitely confuses the the matter because hubert is is the only one who doesn't you know jump straight to violence Mm -hmm. and he i mean he approaches it and he says he'll do it he's willing to do it um, but he knows even in his own heart, he's like, oh, if he keeps talking, he's going to convince me. Yeah, yeah. And then, oh, he convinced me. Damn it. <laughs> you know, like yeah, yeah. it's, it's interesting that he's, he's, uh, got that, that moral center, but is then, uh, portrayed as, as being the opposite of so many of the other characters. Well, yeah, he, I think it's good you brought up chivalry because he does kind of have that chivalric masculine heart to him, mm-hmm. um, that is almost corrupted to a an aggressive masculine, you know, action that, that would lead to the death of Arthur, Mm -hmm. um, which is what other male characters take in the play, including the bastard who is the only one to commit like a physical act of violence, not on stage, but he comes in carrying Austria's head. Well, in the production we saw. Well, no, I think he does. I think, I don't think it's stage direction, but it's, it's he's decapitated and you know that he's decapitated. He does talk about it. So like, we know that this happens, but, um, yeah, so that's that's one type of masculinity, but then there's this other type of masculinity that's also being presented that I think Hubert embodies very clearly. Yeah. Um, but the fact that he's able to be talked out of his um, his intentions. Yeah. If we go back to what the women do, which is talk yes. a lot. Yes. And they use their words to get what they want. Yeah. Um, which is kind of a stereotypical way of. Yeah, looking you know, at it, looking yeah. at women, yeah. but it, it kind of holds true that they that would tend to be a more feminine trait mm-hmm. that Hubert falls prey to that Arthur is able to use to his advantage. Yeah. But if we look at the women, they're using their words to command armies. Yes. So are yeah. they truly <laughs> feminine characters? Yeah, yeah, right? exactly. I mean, and the men are are ineffectual at, at leading their armies. Yeah. Whenever they're in charge, exactly, they, the battles don't go well. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it, it it's it is interesting, it's, and what complicates it even further is the bastard himself because yeah. uh, he is, as we've mentioned, kind of like a talkative character. He's yeah. the one who kind of uses words and he likes to insult and oh yeah, and uh, his wordplay. Word we we yeah. didn't even talk about this, but his whole initial um, and it's it's a a monologue uh, and aside to the audience where he talks about how he's going to adopt the way of speaking, the manner of speaking of the upper classes. He's going to forget people's names and he's going to, you know, suck his teeth before he talks after he finishes his dinner because he's a gentleman now. And, and, um, and that's, it's, it's not quite an affectation and he says he's not going to deceive people. He doesn't want to do this to deceive people, but to avoid deceit, I think is the, I can't remember the quote, but, but he's very thoughtful about it about the way he's going to present himself and he does it using words Mm -hmm. so the bastard uses wordplay um king john also uses wordplay in some in some places to um to talk around the the king of france and um the pope there's there's lots of instances of wordplay and 
I don't know. I don't know what that does to the masculinity, no, it, femininity. It's true. You know, it is a spectrum. Yeah. And, the, and there, I suppose it's very easy in this play to see a lot of these characters existing um, in a fluid place. They yeah. kind of go back and forth. So yeah. it's not like, um, uh, oh, I can't remember his name from Henry the Sixth. The king? No. Well, the king is the king is obviously not. He's not a masculine. No. Character, yeah. And he's not codified as a masculine character no, either. But the very hyper masculine characters that we that we had in those plays, yeah. who, who are just proudly aggressive, yeah. and they don't rely on their words. Yeah, like a Talbot or something. Yeah, like Talbot. That. Yeah, thank yeah, you. That's yeah. the name. Yeah. All the way to like a Richard the Third, who yeah. is very good at using his words and addresses the audience quite eloquently in yeah. many. Many aside, is not good at fighting, and is not good at fighting, <laughs> and is not typically codified as masculine. Yeah, like this is not a play that's dealing in those. No, those in extremes. any way, those extremes. Yeah. This is a very gender fluid play. Yeah, in a weird way. I say nuanced, but yeah, yeah, but yeah. well, okay, yeah. It, I'm it, saying gender in terms of of a stereotypical. Yeah, 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 yeah. Binary that no, we're but talking it, about, but, but it but it is interesting that it that the the characters are all. Um, somewhere on that spectrum and Mm -hmm. that the play doesn't care too much about judging or uh supporting or anything no any of those characters no um even though you have the bastard there uh talking you know making quips and stuff it's it's very kind of like it's there for dramatic value more than anything right and the fact that his name throughout is bastard is yeah. kind of like it's telling. It's like, yeah, okay, here's this guy. We're gonna raise him up, but he don't forget. He's always just bastard. Yeah, like he's not. He's not a real Plantagenet. They didn't label him Plantagenet in the text, um, and no one addresses him no. as such. So, well, except for the one time when he's knighted. Or yeah, yeah, at the very whatever. start. Yeah. So I mean, like it is. It's just it's a very strange play that way. Yeah, the play doesn't condemn, but it doesn't support any one character or their claim to the throne or or anything. I think that's what makes the play really stand out is that it doesn't matter where these characters land on that that spectrum of uh, if you want to say masculine or feminine mm-hmm. qualities, whatever that spectrum is, um, they what what the bastard says is true. It's all about commodifying whatever they're they're doing Mm -hmm. whatever choice they're making and and the play kind of accepts that this is how people are and when you think about it it kind of holds true like people are advantageous they Mm -hmm. are they're self-serving self-serving that's part of human nature so it in reality i mean it's far less believable when you have a character who deals in moral absolutes Mm -hmm. Then when you have characters on stage who like Hubert or uh, any of the characters who kind of go back and forth between two extremes, depending on the scene, that is that is more in keeping with reality, maybe. Mm -hmm. So maybe this is a more realistic historical play than we've given it credit for. It's it's a weird feeling because Mm -hmm. it also feels like it has a bit of the... Uh, tragedy lens applied to it a little really? bit more. Just in the sense that um, these characters all have like, um, I don't know, it, it was more when you were when you were talking about uh, the male characters and 
the kind of archetypes that they fit into and using words and stuff. It reminded me of, of the Hamlets of the world where it's, it's kind of on the spectrum from uh, the decisiveness of Claudi- Claudius to the indecisiveness of Hamlet. And you have, uh, or Laertes is in, is somewhere in the middle. And then you also have Fortinbras offstage. And then you have, uh, Polonius, who's does nothing but talk, and and there's this this wide spectrum of characters, and you're kind of left with this this befuddled sense of, um, you know, Hamlet was right, um, but because he never acted on it, uh, it it does that matter? Mm. You know, it's like what was he actually good if he couldn't act on it in time? Was is the bastard good because he's just commenting on all the faults of everyone else, or you know, like it just. there's a strange undertone to this play that doesn't feel like some of the other histories, Mm. but at the same time, it very much does feel like the other histories because it does strange things like introduce a character and then have him die. Right. You know, the next scene or whatever. Right. Well, that, that leads into the last kind of theme that I wanted to bring up, which is the relationship to the past, because, Mm -hmm. um, I felt it more in this play, probably because it doesn't have any real cohesive, narrative thrust mm-hmm. to it it feels like this is is almost an allegory for the modern shakespearean time yeah right so shakespeare using a play it's not like this is the first time he's used a, a history play to comment on the current day situation with the queen um this play is you know late 1590s elizabeth is getting on in age she's yep. not married she will not produce a child um there's going to be a success a succession crisis so the question of inheritance the question of femininity and masculinity the Mm -hmm. question of power i mean we've got the spanish armada defeated you know within living memory of of most people in his audience Mm -hmm. um it's and that was a a very real protestant versus catholic battle that was being fought you know, on the seas and it shouldn't have gone in England's favor, but it did. And here in this play, you've got all of those issues. You've got inheritance. You've got women wielding power when they really shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. Um, You've got uh, military power um, being exerted um, and, and a Catholic Pope being insulted in a, in a way that would never have happened in the 12th century, but that fits very nicely in with the Protestant teachings of the 16th century or the 17th century. So this play much more than others really felt like it was Shakespeare commenting on the political issues of his day. And I think that, um, that makes it, maybe that's why it's so challenging Mm -hmm. to us because we don't see the importance. We, we talked about this before. We yeah. Neither one of us had read King John. We're like, what the hell are they going to talk about in King John? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I had a vague recollection of the bastard character being mentioned somewhere. So I kind of knew that this was a character that was going to show up. Um, but I thought, oh, well, we're going to be dealing with Magna Carta. We're going to be dealing with the grand things that yeah. this King John, who's kind of a squirrely snake of a character. I just mixed my metaphors quite nicely there. <laughs> squirrely snake, I guess. Yeah. Um, who, who follows after Richard the Lionheart yeah. in, the, in the great Robin Hood fables, right? No, you got none of that. Yeah. None of that is even addressed in this play, except yeah. in maybe a, a kind of roundabout way when you talk about the divine right of kings and power and magna carta but but so yeah it it does feel like this is this is 
a stand-in for the current tensions of Shakespeare Shakespeare's day. Yeah, it's definitely a, if you if you could if you just looked at King John's life and you had to pick uh, something to focus on and make a play about, this is not the most dramatic. No, it's not the most anything that would bring people in. No, it has no seats. great monologues. It has no great no. like. He's not a great character. No. He's not really well developed even. But this that's because this play is not concerned about any of that. It's concerned about. You know, bastards and inheritance and power, and yeah. for that, it did a it did a great job. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. So, why do we think that the events of King John's reign are not as fresh in our minds, uh, or are they in in some way? I, I don't, aside from the things we talked about, it doesn't seem like this play has as much relevance to us today. So I'm wondering, like, when you when you see a, a modern production of Shakespeare, they tend to try and fit in some kind of interpretive um, yeah. angle to Yeah, it. and I don't think you really can in this play. Like, it, it would be almost impossible. I think that's a large reason for why it's not put on anymore. It's yeah. just, I mean, you, you talked about, uh, it was first one put to film in 1899. Yeah. That's when Victoria's dying, you know, like that's yeah. still a concern yeah. then. Of, yeah. I mean, they she obviously had a ton of kids and that wasn't quite the yeah, same. There but wasn't it, an, this was, yeah. you know, it was the end of a 70 years of a 70 year reign or something like yeah, that. It a was long a, time. a super long time that she'd been on the throne and England was going to move on. That's a concern again. You so know? is this funny? So the version that we watched was a stage production in the Stratford Festival from yeah. a few years back. Yeah. Um, are we coming to the, to the next great King John era? Because well, you know, yeah. Elizabeth Queen Elizabeth, coming, yeah. she's, she's been on the on throne the yeah. for a long time. Yeah, I think there's there's something there, and I mean, it is still a concern in 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 uh, any royal watching. Circle. Yeah, Monica's <laughs> circles, and like even just the 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 world that you and I inhabit where we're like oh those kooky royals but you know like are they going to exist is the monarchy going to continue you know like whose picture is going to be on the back of our loonies exactly and toonies yeah and you know the bills too yeah I know but I like saying toonies and loonies on our podcast just in case people don't know just to say I I really enjoyed watching the Stratford production because it was nice to hear familiar accent yeah that's true that is true (laughs) it it is a little distracting when the bastard comes on and you're just like that guy plays hockey on the weekend I was just gonna say he's like yeah that guy was like a right winger in major for like two years then messed up his knee he's like I'm gonna go into acting yeah and he did and it was it's great we have no idea who this actor is if he's listening he's not listening but if he was listening we apologize profusely unless you did play my major junior then you know in which case we're very sorry that you weren't able to continue your nhl career um which is the most canadian thing that has ever (laughs) happened on this podcast if i longer stay we shall begin our ancient bickerings this episode's ancient bickerings is um all kind of kind of an intersection i think we're going to touch on everything we talked about Mm -hmm. but it's who does Shakespeare think should sit on the throne? Huh. Based on your understanding of the man, the context he was writing in, uh, all the characters in the play, uh, who's, who, you know, the dynamics of power and inheritance and all that, who do you think should sit on the throne? Lindsay, I'm not going to let you go first because I have someone in mind. And Good, because I, I have jump no earthly idea what I'm going to say. Okay. So I want to hear your argument so I can just bash it to pieces. Mine is the bastard. Oh, <laughs> okay. And here's why. <laughs> Uh, in a play that's that's so concerned about um, how things pass from one generation to the next, um, that's concerned about power, that's concerned about uh, masculine and feminine and uh, royalty and all these things, there's one character who stands out. 
It's the character that he wanted you to focus on. It's hmm. the character that he thinks is the linchpin of tying all these elements together. And it is the bastard. Because, like we mentioned, he is the son of Richard I. He yeah. could be king if it is, you know, if Richard, I think, had already married uh, someone else, obviously, uh, when he knocked him up. But if hmm. he'd gone and, you know, the Pope had granted a divorce to Lady Falconbridge, uh, she could have become the queen of of uh england and this guy this bastard would not be a bastard and he would be the next king of england um but you know there's that that that's a whole bunch of what ifs but the blood is there the the ability to inherit kingliness is there if you view you know the the divine right of kings as being something that's passed from father to son you know does god really know the difference Anyways, that's just that's just a question. I think that I think that opens up that that case. I think it uh, it plainly says that uh, John and uh, Arthur are both too feminine. They are not active. They are mm-hmm. not good at being the the kind of uh, masculine kings that are required of Shakespeare mm-hmm. in all of his other plays. You know, it's the same with Henry the Sixth. He was a bad king because he wasn't manly enough. Bastard's cutting up the Duke of Austria's head and carrying his lion skin around. Mm-hmm. Um, he's avenging his father. Uh, I, I think that uh, he's a good balance in terms of knowing what's important because he's willing to give up his uh, his lands and his, his small titles that he might have had in order to become Sir Richard II, <laughs> you know, uh, Plantagenet, you know? Mm. Th- there's this... There's a sense of him being the, the 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 locus upon which the rest of the play turns, and I think he's there to show, hey, this is the guy that could have been king if if he was. Can, can, just imagine if he was king, none of this would have happened. He's a very kind of, uh, in the sense of having you know a sense of humor and uh, being vigorous enough to fight and you know being just uh, and serving well, you know following all the rules while still being just. Um, except for ransacking the, the the church, maybe that's not so good. But again, Protestants, so you know, it's it's whatever. It's it's fine to ransack the Catholic Church, but he's a very hallish Henry V kind of figure. Hmm. He seems like a bit of an archetype. So that that's that's where I'm going. I think Shakespeare put him in there to say, mm, you know, maybe this kind of thing is what you should be looking for in a king. It would be an interesting thing if that were true, because <laughs> it it would seem to suggest that. Um, any outsider with a claim to the throne could be elevated. It well, would be a politically are, dangerous they, thing to do okay. in the sixteen Agreed. early 1600s. I agree. Absolutely. But at the same time, it's also a very accurate thing because James was, what, her nephew Yes, because there removed? was no one else. Yes. Because, because she didn't well, have any children. Well, and all so, of her other brothers and sisters, or other sisters had died, right? Like, I get it. I get it. But I'm just saying, like, I, in some ways, that makes more sense because it's like this guy's not the king, the son of a king of England, but he's still going to be your king. James the First is coming; he's going to be your king, and he's not, you know, uh, yeah. the son of Richard or of Henry the Second. But, but here's here's my thing okay. because if we're going to talk about um, inheritance, and mm-hmm. we're and that if that's a central concern for the play, and I do agree that it is, um, he's a bastard. He is not a legitimate son of Richard I. Absolutely not. Even right. though he is bestowed legitimacy by his grandam mm-hmm. and his uncle, presumably, 
And I mean, there's no there's no real proof that he is the son of uh, Richard. His, his mother his mother turns on a dime to say, "Yeah, yeah, actually you were Richard's son." I'm, I'm, no, I'm he just doesn't saying, even prompt her. She I says get it, it I was get it. Richard the First. I'm just saying, if we look strictly at the rules of primogeniture, yeah, Aiden, if we look at the rules of primogeniture, <laughs> Richard the Lionheart was still a younger son than Geoffrey II, whose son Arthur should inherit the no. throne before Richard. Yes, he was. I don't think so. I have got the information right oh, in front okay. of me. So, so was so, Henry, then Geoffrey, then... Richard? Henry, then Geoffrey, then Richard. Well, Queen uh, Eleanor, Joan, then John. His daughters, and then then Richard. And then John, who succeeded Richard I as king. Okay. Um, But I'm just saying... Arthur has a has a stronger claim to the okay, throne, but, and I, I'm okay, just I'm just throwing that out there. I, I I'm I'm suggesting that um, the death of a young innocent prince who was closer in age to the the upcoming James on the yep. throne, yep. Um, someone who was not probably widely seen as popular this was going to be a difficult transition for the people of england to Mm -hmm. accept a scottish king on their throne um this this young boy is innocent he has the moral right he has um certainly a claim to the divine right uh his position is a fairly strong one and the the fact that he doesn't want it Okay, mm. he's he's like Jon Snow in this case. If we want to go back to Didn't your yeah. Game of Thrones analogy, yes. he doesn't want it. Yeah. It's not something that he is pursuing. I think that in itself makes him an interesting candidate for what but, Shakespeare might have mm. thought. Would he have made a good king is a secondary concern. Is he going to be a, would he have been a popular king or a, a, a just or a, even, a, even a competent king? I, I, it's it's not it's a secondary concern. Okay, I just think. Can I can I refute your point now? You can try. Okay, you've 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 as a teacher, I'm very disappointed, Lindsay, because you've oh. fallen into the classic problem of misreading the question. It's not about who should be the king. It's no, about who should Shakespeare? That's what I'm saying. I'm king. saying Shakespeare wrote no. this character as innocent yes. and morally right and having and you know all of those things. Was that? Henry the Sixth. You know how much Shakespeare didn't want him to be king. We read three plays about it. Yes, but he was, he was the king. king. So it doesn't matter if but, he wanted him to he be wasn't. king or not. He, he was, was the king. He was the king, and then he was not, and then he was, and then he wasn't. Lindsay, at the end of yeah. the and Shakespeare wasted no words in explaining how he was not a good king, and he should not have been. But king. that was historically true. We're talking yes. about a situation. We're talking about hypotheticals. Historically, Henry the Sixth was not a good king. Yes, we understand that. Historically, <laughs> Arthur and the bastard never had a chance to be king so shakespeare can posit all he wants about either of them that's why we're able to make these arguments sure but it doesn't change the fact that how he present what what is a good king in shakespeare is very fairly consistent across mm-hmm. all of his plays and you think the bastard has- i think is the bastard has all the qualities that shakespeare and shakespeare didn't have to invent him he invented a character i mean he's in the the earlier version we didn't talk about this but there was a previous version of this play uh the tragedy of king john i don't remember what it was called but uh they don't think it was shakespeare or it might have been based on someone remembering the play again one of those texts there's a bastard character in there too but again there's no clear sign of a bastard anywhere in the text shakespeare created this character 
for a purpose. And I think part of the purpose is to show here's what a good king looks like. Here's the option. Here's here he is off on the side. Yeah, I think he's just he's he's the the MST3K character who's commenting on on the ongoing battles and well, we, scenes we talked to about be funny. A, we talked about a, a, a Gary Stu. I feel like that's more yes, accurate. Yes, yes. But Gary Stu in the sense of here's the best character. Uh, I, I, I think... <laughs> I've come around, Lindsay. I I've used think, fan fiction against you. Yes, no, I win. but I don't I think win. you win. I think we're going to leave this to our listeners wild. to decide whether or not this fake character that was created in order to comment on the action is a better choice for king in the eyes of the author than the historical character who has the the lineage to back him up you're making my point for me. i'm not you're i'm talking about point. arthur you're, you're talking point. about the bastard i this is why i love you when you make my point for me you are an infuriating man Parting is such sweet sorrow that I shall say goodnight till it be morrow. Aiden, what is next on our docket? Uh, next up we have a episode all about Shakespeare sources. Speaking of histor- historical works, oh. uh, we're going to look at... Uh, Hollinshed Head and yeah. uh, the uh, uh, ancient Greek and Latin... Yep. poets that uh, inspired Shakespeare. We're going to look at um, some of his more contemporary yep. poets and playwrights like Christopher Marlowe, yep. um, Je- Geoffrey Chaucer as well is going to show up in that. I think yep. that'll be an interesting episode to kind of look at where Shakespeare gets his in- inspiration, yep. um, not and just for the history yep. plays, because that's one thing, but who influenced his writing style and the thematic choices that he made as he was... Yeah, and, and his source material for... I mean, Shakespeare didn't write many of his own original plays. No. There's, there's a lot of precedent for almost all of them, so we'll talk a little bit about that too yeah, yeah. Um, after that do you want to guess I want to see you guess oh I can't remember now oh uh, as you like it nope what is it if you prick us do we not bleed The Merchant of Venice one of Yay. my favorite plays featuring um, one of the most um, controversial characters Mm-hmm. In, in all of Shakespeare's canon, and one of the strongest female characters. I will argue that till the end of my days. Yeah, so did I. Um, so there you go. <laughs> uh, so that'll be an interesting one to look at in a month's time from now. Yep. We will be releasing Merchant of Venice. In between that, we'll have our episode on Shakespeare's influences and the things that uh, helped him to create the worlds that he created. Mm-hmm. Um, so until then, we hope you stay well, and we look forward to having you join us next time. You can find all our episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcast fix. If you want to tell us what you think of Shakespeare, his plays, poems, or any of the topics we discuss, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us on Twitter, that's at the Bixpod, on Facebook at facebook.com slash thebixpod, or by email at thebixpod at gmail.com. That's our cue to exit.